From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. On most residentially zoned lots in many American neighborhoods, it is illegal to build anything other than a single-family home. Take Sandy Springs. 85% of the Atlanta suburb's residential land allows only for detached single-family homes. Some people want to change that, and regional leaders are passing laws to increase density. Others want things to say exactly as they were. One family... One house, one yard. Emily Badger writes about cities and urban policy for The Upshot, and she recently published a piece on the history and future of residential zoning in America. She's on the line from Washington, D.C. Emily, hello. Hi, Virginia. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. Also with us, Evelyn Andrews. She covers Sandy Springs for Reporter Newspapers. Hello and welcome. Good morning. All right, Emily, I'm going to start with you. You call single-family zoning, quote, practically gospel in America. How did it become an American ideal? So this is an idea that is about 100 years old. The Supreme Court said that zoning in general and single-family zoning specifically were legal in the 1920s. And after they said that, communities all over the country very rapidly adopted this concept. And basically what it says is that, you know, we want to take neighborhoods that have nothing but single-family homes in them, and we want to protect them from anything denser ever encroaching on those single-family homes. And so, you know, we're going to draw a zone over here where apartment buildings are allowed. We're going to draw zone over here where single family buildings are allowed. And over the course of the 20th century, you know, as a lot of newer suburbs, subdivisions, cities were built, uh, even older cities downzoned repeatedly uh, over a span of several decades so that we get to this point uh, in the 21st century where a vast, vast share of the residential land in most cities in America allows only a single family home. Downzoning meaning going from multiple units to just one? Right. So before the advent of zoning, you know, cities sort of developed in this, um, you know, somewhat haphazard way where a small apartment building would be built next to a single family home, next to a duplex, you know, next to, um, you know, a building that's got three or four units. And effectively over time, many cities made that kind of development illegal. They said, you know, this neighborhood that has all these different kinds of houses, now we only want to have single family homes here. From, from now on going forward, that is the only thing that can be built here. And if those four unit apartment buildings for some reason get torn down, they cannot be replaced with a four-unit apartment building. They can only be replaced by a single-family zone. So, um, Well, yeah, you so, write that the problems of zoning that prioritize single-family housing are invisible. So what are we not seeing? Well, so single-family zoning is inextricably tied to a lot of other things that communities are concerned about right now. So there is a concern that they have encouraged sprawl. Um, you know, if we can't build dense enough cities, then we're going to build on greenfield areas outside of cities, and we're going to build highways out there, and people are going to spend a lot of time in their cars, and they're going to create a lot of auto emissions. So there's a concern among some environmentalists that single-family zoning contributes to making it very difficult to address climate change. You know, if de developing denser cities is one solution to climate change, single-family zoning makes that very difficult. There's another set of concerns that baked into these ideas from the very beginning has been, uh, you know, different kinds of exclusion. Poor people shouldn't live near wealthy people. In effect, uh, non-whites are in many communities sort of blocked from living in communities that are predominantly white, uh, just because whites are much more likely to be homeowners in this country. And 
And so single-family zoning is viewed as being tied to racial inequality in many communities. Um, so, so there's a number of different things going on here, whether it has to do with racial injustice and, and sort of the history of racial injustice or climate change um, or, you know, just sort of economic opportunity for lower-income people to be able to access things like good schools. All of those things are baked into this concept of zoning, which, you know, most of us don't really ever pay any attention to. Well, there are some municipalities who are eliminating single-family zoning, like Minneapolis. So what was the goal there, and, and what was the result? Yeah, so Minneapolis did this really shocking thing in December, which they, they were the first major country or major city in the United States that said, we're just going to get rid of single family zoning entirely. So 70% of the residential land in Minneapolis is zoned only for single family homes. And the city council there voted in December to say, okay, overnight, we're going to get rid of that. We're going to say on any single family lot in the city, you are allowed to build a two or three unit building, not just a one unit sort of detached single family home. And um, they did this in Minneapolis in part because, you know, they're, they're in the midst of um, a, a very deep conversation there about racial inequality. Minneapolis is a city where the white homeownership rate is vastly higher than the black homeownership rate, the non-white homeownership rate. There is a great concern in Minneapolis that, you know, while it's this model city in many ways, uh, it has a lot of problems with racial inequality. And that that is a large part what the conversation was about there in addressing this. So the argument, there are arguments pro and con for single family zoning that you present in your article. Could you share some of the concerns of homeowners who do want single families homes to remain the norm or the law of the land? So a lot of those concerns are expressed in these, these much more kind of concrete concerns that people have about their quality of life. So things like, uh, I won't be able to find a parking spot on my street, or my child's classroom will become overcrowded, or maybe the infrastructure, the roads, the sewer system doesn't have the capacity in my neighborhood to have many more people in it. So on the one hand, you know, cities are having this conversation about these very kind of high level concerns having to do with climate change or housing affordability or racial inequality. But then on the other hand, a lot of the pushback against that is saying, no, 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 no. The, this, is, this is not about sort of these big sweeping ideals. This is about the quality of life of individual people in actual neighborhoods. And we shouldn't do anything to damage that because we think we're going to create fairer cities by eliminating this idea when we don't really know if that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And most of those people are taxpayers. They're paying property taxes. So which side do you think has the better case or maybe I should ask the better chances of really setting an agenda here? Well, single-family zoning is so deeply entrenched in America. I mean, this has been the normal way of developing and planning cities for decades. Uh, politicians on both the left and right, this really is not a partisan issue at all, uh, have, have bought into and supported this. Um, and... Uh, Voters are overwhelmingly homeowners. Uh, the people who would like to maintain the status quo sort of exert more uh, power in the political process and in these debates than renters do, uh, than people who are likely to benefit from this change. So, you know, this is this is sort of a radical idea, and it's a radical idea that's pushing back against a lot of people who are not going to want to see change. Mm. So, uh, you know, while it's sort of remarkable that Minneapolis did this, I don't necessarily think we're going to see kind of every city across the country 
sweepingly get rid of these things the way they, you know, sort of sweepingly all adopted them in the 20s and 30s. But I, I do think that, you know, this is a conversation that we're hearing in more and more places. And prior to Minneapolis doing this, this was really sort of an unthinkable thing for a city to do. And now that one major city has done it, a lot of people are going, maybe it's not as unthinkable as we thought it was. Mm, Emily Badger there, writer for The New York Times, The Upshot blog, speaking with us about zoning. And we are going to get some perspective from local, uh, uh, from a local suburb, Sandy Springs. Evelyn Andrews is with us. She covers Sandy Springs for the Reporter newspaper. Evelyn, 85% of residential land in Sandy Springs is zoned for single-family homes, but still many homeowners are concerned about zoning changes. What, what kind of changes has Sandy Springs seen in recent years? Well, in 2017, the city actually passed a new development code, which made 67%, roughly 67% of the city, a protected neighborhood, which keeps those single-family home neighborhoods intact and protected from any development, because that's one of the city's main goals. And we have heard the same kind of things, you know, congestion schools, transience mm -hmm. is a quote that is often used. Right. And yeah. what does that mean? So, you know, even though they have those uh, those protected neighborhoods, there have been some mixed-use developments coming along the major corridors, which is something the city wants to encourage. Um, but single-family homeowners still had concerns about the traffic that that brings. And also they had concerns about some of the um, short-term leases that they were offering when they first opened and just feeling like the people that live there aren't, like, committed to the city, willing to stay there. Um there's also an argument some people make that the reason people li leave the sort of a lower income affordable housing on the northern end of the city is because they are chasing lower rents after a year. That's why they're leaving after a year. It's not because they're leaving the city. They're leaving a different apartment to a different apartment complex to get a lower price. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, census data does show Sandy Springs is one of the most rapidly growing areas in the country. So do you have a sense of the direction things are heading in Sandy Springs? Can current zoning policies support that? Well, in the comprehensive plan that they pass, you know, they're, they're trying to grapple with being a growing city and protecting the neighborhoods because that's one of the main reasons the city was founded in 2005 to begin with is because of the they didn't like some of the development that Fulton County was approving. So right now their plan is to concentrate that development on the major corridors and bring that downtown feel they want to have and that walkability. So that's their, their plan now. And uh, although some single family homeowners have concerns that the infrastructure can handle bringing that sudden influx of a lot of residents to the, uh, one area. So, Emily, I'm curious, where does this fear of apartments come from? I mean, obviously, the, the, the birth of the suburbs was about getting out of the city, pursuing a quieter, more traditional version of suburban life. I think apartments are equated with renters. And there's this idea that recurs in debates all over the country that, you know, says renters, uh, they don't vote, they don't participate in elections, they don't take care of their neighborhoods, they're not as invested in their school systems. And the, the subtext of some of that is that, you know, in, in some ways, they're, they're not full participants in the community. Uh, they're not going to care about it as much as the rest of us do. And so a, a lot of this fear of multifamily buildings, I do think, is um, sort of bound up in a fear of renters. And, you know, just, just because of the dynamics of racial inequality we have in this country, the renter population is also much more likely to be a non-white population. So it's a little bit difficult to sort of disentangle how much of people's fears here is about low-income people, how much is about renter people, how much is about non-white neighbors, um, because all of those groups sort of overlap in who we're talking about here. Uh, but, but this is certainly sort of a theme that recurs in, 
in these debates in every community. And, you know, one of the challenges here in having debates about this is that there are lots of sort of coded ways for people to talk about what they object to. uh, And we may not always entirely understand what they are really concerned about. Mm. Well, you uh, putting an end to single family housing. This is a policy choice that has even made its way into a few presidential campaign platforms. What are candidates promising? So Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, and Julian Castro have all suggested that the federal government should withhold some money for things like community development block grants to cities that have these really exclusionary uh, zoning policies. Kind of the worst of the worst offenders would be, for example, a suburb that says not just we're only going to zone for single family, but we're only going to allow single family lots on, say, 10,000 square foot lots. You know, that that's uh, akin to saying only people who can afford really expensive expensive mansions on very large lots can live in this community. Mm-hmm. And so so you know, the federal government really has almost no control over zoning. It is a very local issue in America, um, and it has always been that way. That's an important principle to a lot of communities that they retain local control over this. But one thing that the federal government could potentially do is say we're going to wield some of the money that we dole out to communities to try to encourage them to change these laws. Emily, half a minute left. You write that undoing these policies, nothing new, but actually a, quote, return to the past. Can you quickly summarize that for us? Sure. Well, before single family zoning came into effect, communities developed the way a lot of people would like to see them develop now. You know, it's not that you can't have single family homes, but that those single family homes may be next door to a duplex, may be next door to, you know, a mid-rise apartment building. And in effect, if we removed single family zoning, that's what we would probably see again, not, you know, a 20 story apartment building next to a single family home, but sort of smaller mid-rise things sprinkled in among them. Emily Badger, New York Times writer for the Upshot blog. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Evelyn Andrews, thank you so much for coming in to talk about Sandy Springs. She's a reporter for she is a reporter for Reporter Newspapers. Thank you for being here. Thank you. All right, you can join the conversation. What do you think? There goes the neighborhood, or do you welcome density? Coming up, barbecue. It's a noun, a verb. It unites, divides, and it's slow-cooked into American history, politics, and culture. We'll slice them off when On Second Thought continues. And we are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. It is one of the things that divides Americans. State against state, region against region, pork against beef. Barbecue. Dry ribs are wet. Vinegar, tomato sauce, wood only, or propane. While the particulars, origin stories, and claims to be the barbecue capital of the world may vary, Jim Moody found one thing we can agree on. Barbecue has a southern accent. The veteran journalist and smoked meat Sherpa is out with a new book, Smoke Lore, A Short History of Barbecue in America. And the book dives into the history and evolution and imagery of a tradition that has flavored American culture, identity, and politics since before the nation was a nation. In fact, he's going to be talking about barbecue and politics tonight at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library. But first, Jim, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Virginia. I've never been called a smoked meat sherpa. Well, you know, you can uh, you can use that if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> you you cite dozens of ap- academic and pop culture and cookbook sources already that have been written about barbecue. So, what are you adding with smoke lore? Well, uh, barbecue has never been given the truly uh, uh, the big picture historical view. I think that I'm giving it here. There have been academic histories done. But there's never been a history done that was uh, academically sound, but also as lavishly illustrated as smoke lore. 
and um, act, also got across the sense of fun. That's the whole point. Of it, it is fun to read this yeah. book, I have to say. It's a bit of a romp. And you started researching the book you write when you were five years old. So what was your methodology of research? Well, what I mean by that, of course, is it's in my DNA. I, I come from a long line of pit masters in Georgia, uh, particularly, well, my great-grandfather in Bartow County, Georgia, James Robert Ockmoody, my namesake, uh, was a noted pit master up there. But it was my grandfather, Bob Ockmoody, who we knew as Daddy Bob, who was really the renowned pit master. He was featured in this 1954 article in the Saturday Evening Post uh, titled uh, Dixie's Most Disputed Dish. <laughs> <laughs> and they just happened to set it at the Uharley Farmers Club barbecue uh, outside of Cartersville, where he had been the pitmaster for years. So he's the first picture you see in this thing, uh, looking over the pits. And he became quite uh, sought after after that. Uh, in fact, uh, there was a group in uh, suburban Chicago that had him and some of his pals come up and cook a southern barbecue and make Brunswick stew for 2,000 people up See, there. that's the scale of this is just unbelievable. But the funniest thing is when he came back, he, he was telling uh, all of his experiences to the uh, Cartersville newspaper, and they ran a story about them going up and cooking this barbecue under the tongue-in-cheek headline, Rebels Cook Southern Q in Very Heart of Yankee Land. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always been tied in with so many things, and the history tied in with mythology here in many cases, beginning with the word itself. There are some interesting origin stories for barbecue, which is accurate. Well, you hear a bunch of them. Uh, you hear that it came from a, uh, a brand uh, on a, a Texas ranch, a BBQ. You hear that it came from the French phrase barbecue, which is supposed to mean head to tail, never mind that a, uh, a beard to tail, never mind that a pig doesn't have a beard. Um, the accepted version is that uh, it dates to the earliest uh, encounters between uh, the Taino Indians, the, the, the native tribes uh, of a much of the Caribbean, uh, and the Spanish ex uh, sailors who came with Columbus on his second voyage they saw these Indians out there cooking on the shore of Cuba, and uh, their approximation of the little uh, grill, really, the wooden grill that they were cooking fish and lizards on, uh, was a barbacoa. Okay, lizard. Uh, you know, I was going to say beef or pork. What were, they what were they cooking? They were cooking fish, which the Spanish sailors ate hungrily, and they were cooking iguana, which the Spanish sailors thought was disgusting. And, uh, but, the, uh, but the Taino loved iguana, and they were very relieved that the Spanish didn't steal the iguana because that's actually what they wanted. <laughs> okay, so there are these images that come back of the Caribbean indigenous people and the Taino Indians um, cooking in the West India manner brought back to Europe by artists in the late 1500s. But there's also an early indication here of a kind of duality that would follow barbecue, that it's, you know, both delicious, but it's also bizarre, you know, to them. It's evidence of savagery or low barbaric manners. How did that play out historically, this kind of dual vision? Well, a lot of the early European depictions of barbecue uh, they, they portrayed it as something that was uh, savage and wild and was of the new world. And everything they were saying about the new world was this is a, this is a really exciting place, but it's also dangerous and savage. And barbecue was a, uh, a really great example of that. Now, the irony of this, of course, is that barbecue is actually a timeless and universal cooking technique. It appears in almost every culture in the world. They've been doing it since cavemen and women. 
And uh, so there are barbecue traditions, but the one that really birthed 500 years ago in America and took the word barbecue is probably the most distinctive barbecue tradition in the world, and it's certainly the one that's most wrapped up with its country and its culture. I mean, to me, my central contention in the book is that barbecue is really most truly American food, not apple pie. And the reason why I say that is because it has roots on five continents. It involves almost every ethnic group that makes up America. It, uh, it's so wrapped up in our history. It goes back to the beginning of our history. I mean, there's a reason why we have barbecues on the 4th of July. It embodies us. Hmm. But the South is where, you say, the, the southern, southeastern seaboard, seaboard was really the taproot. Why did it take off in the South especially? Well, it took off in the South because, of course, the, the colonies in Virginia and uh, North Carolina very early on showed a predilection for eating pork. And pigs uh, sort of became the quintessential early barbecue food. Barbecue was all about having big events on plantations. Usually the cooking was done by African slaves. Uh, so they had an out, even though they didn't invent barbecue, they had an outsized hand in, in, in sort of uh, creating what we think of as barbecue. And uh, the combination of plantation socializing and all these pigs uh, in, in Virginia and North Carolina in particular really led to the birth of barbecue culture. And it, it's really why barbecue has such a southern accent to this day. Mm -hmm. And the socializing is the big thing that uh, you're going to be talking tonight about politics and barbecues. And this new American cookie, cooking became a tool for politicians and campaigns, beginning with the very founding of the Republic, George Washington. How did he tie into barbecue history? Well, in George Washington's diaries, he mentions going to seven or eight barbecues, and he spells it every which way with an I, with, you know, this idea that we don't know how to spell barbecue goes way, way back, and we've never settled it to this day. Um, the uh, What you're talking about is that by the founding of the Republic, barbecue was a very well-known institution in the United States, so much so when, that when they laid the cornerstone for the Capitol building in September of 1793, George Washington, who was the president then, first president, he oversaw the ceremony. He was a mason. It was a Masonic ceremony. He put on his uh, Masonic apron. He pronounced the... <laughs> the first the, barbecue apron. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. It was a Masonic apron. Uh, and he, he pronounced the, you know, the, 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 the mumbo jumbo over, over the uh, thing, uh, over the laying of the brick. And, after, and then all the dignitaries repaired for a, a to barbecued ox. That's how they celebrated the founding of the American Republic, was barbecued beef, not pork. <laughs> okay, Texan, Texans get one point there. But this is also inter interesting that there was a practical purpose during the French-Indian War. He, they smoked meat because they didn't have any salt. So is this, is this an improvisational cooking as well? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it it was uh, smoking meat like that. It was all. It was something you did at big gatherings, uh, at parties. Uh, I mean, when Washington was talking about doing barbecues, sometimes these were two and three day events. They were they were long weekends at the plantation, probably with a lot of grog, and. Uh, and yes, a lot of it was about meat preservation. You know, they didn't have a refrigeration in those days. And smoking stuff and seasoning it heavily, uh, salt, pepper, vinegar, uh, the classic sort of eastern North Carolina barbecue sauce ingredients, uh, w was part of making pork last longer. 
Barbecue, says my guest Jim Akmoudi, is America in a mouthful. And we're talking about how that flavor has seeped into many aspects of a na- the nation, as illustrated in his new book, Smoke Lore, A Short History of Barbecue in America. Well, it is still a draw for politicians. You write about in the early 20- late 19th and early 20th century, you know, huge gangs of people coming to enjoy free barbecue or as fundraisers. Recently, 22 Democratic candidates attended the House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn's barbecue in South Carolina. You write there's barbecue for war, peace, reunion, including the Chickamauga battlefield in Georgia. What happened there? In 1889, one of the most famous barbecues of the 1800s happened. It was a reunion of of Confederate and Union soldiers who had fought at Chickamauga. The reason they were uh, going there was they were actually trying to raise awareness for doing national battlefield uh, parks. Mm -hmm. They were trying to preserve the places where the Civil War had been fought. But this barbecue was incredible. Uh, they, uh, everybody got this beautiful invitation. Everyone who came to it got a corn cob pipe of peace. Wow. <laughs> which is on display at the Atlanta History Center in, in the Barbecue Nation exhibition, which I was a curator for, uh, and which is up until September 29th. Um, the, uh, the, the, the the accounts, this was written about in the New York Times and, and, and a lot of different newspapers because it was such a remarkable barbecue. The centerpiece of it was the Confederates and African-Americans uh, cooked the barbecue, and then the Confederates served it to the Union soldiers. So wow. it was supposed to be a reconciliation. So the, there is this history of, uh, you know, barbecue bringing people together, but also, of course, the divisions. You call them the warm disputes that have been going on for some time. And there is, of course, a perennial sticking point. Beef became the norm in Texas after the Civil War, rather than pork. Now, I think it was in a story, and I can't remember exactly who you spoke to, said that that split was actually strategic. What was the strategy there in adopting beef over pork? The idea that they were disassociated with the the Southern cotton pickers, I guess. Well, uh, the main the main reason beef became the dominant uh, uh, meat in Texas was because there were a lot more cows there than there were pigs. But I think what you're talking about is how uh, Texas barbecue is, uh, of course, Texas is one of the great barbecue hotbeds in America, but it has very complicated roots. And lots of times, if you hear accounts of Texas barbecue, you would think that it's all about the classic places around Austin and the old meat markets and and that it you know it, it evolved from uh, cowboy cooking open range cooking and that is one of the strains of Texas barbecue but it actually has a lot more to do with southerners uh, black and white moving into Texas and bringing their barbecue culture with them and mingling with the barbecue culture from from the south of the border mm-hmm. the Mexican barbecue culture so Texas is uh, uh, I think Rob Walsh, a food historian in Houston, is who you're thinking about. He wrote that uh, Southern barbecue is a thoroughbred with easily uh, traceable uh, bloodlines, and Texas barbecue is a mutt. <laughs> but it's a it's a glorious mutt. Well, it, it, despite being delicious and bringing people to people together who may not normally come together. It did not sell in regular dining establishments for a long time. It was, you know, then roadside joints and churches. People would cook it in their homes. When did barbecue become professionalized, for lack of a better word? Well, for most of American history, barbecue referred to a big event. I've gone back and read all of the so many 
news accounts of barbecue, digitized newspapers from the 1800s and early 1900s, and it was almost always a political gathering or a community event. It, it was a big event they were talking about. Barbecue restaurants didn't really start coming about until the very late 1800s and didn't really take off until automobiles became prevalent uh, into the, you know, the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s. The two oldest barbecue places in Georgia are roadside establishments that opened in the 20s, mm-hmm. Sprayberries in Noonan and Fresh Air on US 23 in Jackson. And they both very much started to, you know, to, to service the, the, road, the roadside people. So what you find is that in the, in the mid-20th century, the sense of the word barbecue changes. We think of it today as referring to a restaurant or to something you cook in the backyard. And a hundred years ago, that's not what they thought barbecue was. Well, growing up in New Hampshire, we'd say, let's have a barbecue. <laughs> and it meant grilling hamburgers. <laughs> well, and your sense of the word barbecue is actually a modern sense that comes from the rise of backyard cooking, which was not typical until the early, it really didn't take off until about World War II. Mm-hmm. So but the, when did that become, you know, the... The post-war suburbs took on this barbecue outdoor cooking, but it became really mostly associated with men. Why? Why were men the barbecue chefs? Well, backyard barbecue cooking... Because there was fire, danger. Well, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Backyard barbecue cooking really didn't rise until the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And it really takes off when you start getting these mobile cookers in the backyard and this idea that you build a brick pit in the backyard like I I Love Lucy did uh, uh, to, uh, to, to cook back there. It became part of the suburban good life. And that period actually coincided with probably the, the, the height of gender stereotyping in, in American culture. So if you go back and look at barbecue cookbooks from the 1950s and 60s and, in, and, and the magazines where they wrote about it, it is just amazing and laughable how much they play up the idea that men are supposed to be doing this cooking and that women are supposed to be getting a day off uh, from from the cooking chores. And you know, J- no, no less an authority than James Beard in one of his cookbooks said, barbecue is men's work. Well, let's hear a little bit from a, a clip from an episode of I Love Lucy addressing that very thing. And then I figured that the grill should be up, say, about that high to keep the smoke out of our eyes. <laughs> now, would that make it kind of awkward for cooking? Well, we'll get a little stepladder and stand on that. Oh, a stepladder. Wait a minute. Where are the blueprints? Blueprints? The plans. Oh, who needs plans? We'll just create as we go along. Yeah, we thought we'd just ad-lib this barbecue. Now, just a minute, girls. Just a minute. It is very obvious that you don't know what you're doing. I better do this job myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ethel, I guess that's right. I guess they do know more about it than we do. Yeah, building a barbecue is man's work. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are heading right into a break. But quickly, Jim Ockmoody, how many people, is it still true? More women, men rather, cook outside than women? I don't know the exact statistics, but I think it's pretty clear that men have more of an affinity for going outside and building a fire. But the idea that women are not involved in barbecue was never true, and it's even less true now than it ever has been. All right, we're going to hang on for just a minute and be back with Jim Ockmoody, author of Smoke Lore, A Short History of Barbecue in America. Louis Armstrong in the background, 1927 song, Strutting with some barbecue. That's what we're going to do after a short break. We are back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Is anybody feed my 
Memphis Minnie there expressing her love of barbecue, or something, from her 1941 song, Pig Meat on the Line. Like the blues that originated in the American South and were slow-cooked by African-Americans over the decades, my guest Jim Ockmoody says barbecue is America in a mouthful, much more so than apple pie. Jim was a longtime award-winning reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and is author of Smoke Lore. It's a short history of barbecue in America. He's going to be speaking about barbecue and politics at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library this evening. Okay, so I want to get back to those outdoor chefs because they bought up this this the first consumer model Charbroil Wheelboro Grill that was made in Columbus, Georgia. A little bit on that company's history. Well, Charbroil is uh, a they make they're they're really the second most successful grill maker in America behind Weber. And they make the most gas grills. And they started out as a foundry down in Columbus. And during the Civil War, they made artillery for the Confederacy. But their main business for many, many years was making those old wooden uh, uh, heating stoves that you would find in stores and homes and everything back in the day. And by World War II, the bottom had dropped out of that market. And right after World War II, they started making these uh, uh, mobile cookers. And their first model from 1947 or 8, I forget which year, uh, it is hilarious looking because you can see it in mid-evolution. It is called the Charbroil Wheelbarrow Picnic uh, <laughs> Cooker, and it, it, it looks somewhat like a wheelbarrow and somewhat like a uh, a smoker but it's it's not quite either and they they've got one of those at the history center and and they've got one actually displayed out of the uh, at the at Charbroil in Columbus too they're they're it's quite a barbecue artifact to look at. Well, you can see loads of pictures in this book. And, of course, there are um, many of them or most of them on view at the Barbecue Nation exhibit at the at the Atlanta History Center. Probably there are a lot of them in the book that are in the exhibition, but there's a lot of overlap, too. You're right. Well, you're also but bringing up the Civil War and this kind of evolution. This harkens back to Gone with the Wind and one of the most famous barbecue scenes in popular culture. Here is Hattie McDaniel playing Mammy to Vivian Lee's Scarlett O'Hara in the 1939 film. Oh, now, Miss Scarlett, you come on and be good and eat just little. No, honey. I'm going to have a good time today and do my eating at the barbecue. <laughs> there is more to that scene, but it's almost painful to listen to now. Well, you know, Gone with the Wind has become that way. It's it's such a beloved film in so many ways, and then but so much of it looks so dated and sort of wrongheaded to us now. Uh, that's a really you know, to me that that's the most famous barbecue scene in in the American movies is the Gone with the Wind barbecue at Twelve Oaks that begins that movie, and it's such a great story because how did they know how to stage a barbecue like that? Well, the guy who was the technical and historical advisor uh, for the uh, Gone with the Wind was Wilbur Kurtz, uh, an amateur historian here in Atlanta. And he didn't know anything about how to stage an antebellum barbecue. So he went and he interviewed uh, a very elderly black man uh, with the great name Will Hill. And he, if you, he took six pages of notes on how to stage an antebellum barbecue. Will was a very young man, uh, was born into slavery, and, and had direct memory of how these things were done. So Wilbur Kurtz has the, all these detailed notes, including diagrams of exactly how the meat should be put on the grid and all this other kind of stuff. And that's how they staged that barbecue for 12 Oaks which was actually staged uh, out in California. Um, and uh, they, they've got those notes at the Atlanta History Center, and I reproduced a page from them there just to 
I just think it's very ironic that this film that is so associated with the lost cause and mm-hmm. Old South sentimentality uh, that they had to go talk to an old black man to find out how to do the barbecue. That speaks volumes, doesn't it? Well, it does. And, and there's so much in this book that does speak to that. Um, I'm thinking Hattie McDaniel. She uh, had to accept her Best Actress Oscar for that. In a, after getting it, she had to sit at a way back table at the Coconut Grove in the dark, practically, because it was uh, had a no-blacks policy. And, and race is, of course, a part of barbecue history. And as you point out, barbecue and slavery took root at the same time. But what what we when we look back now, what does that tandem rise reveal about the origins and the evolution of barbecue? Well, when I told people I was working on this book, a lot of folks would ask me, didn't black people invent barbecue? And I've got a whole chapter in the book called The Color of Q that actually sort of deals with that question because the answer to it is no, they didn't invent barbecue. No one ethnic group invented barbecue. It really has very complicated multi-ethnic roots stretching across five continents. But damn, it sure seems like they did because they're so profoundly identified with it in in ways that are both offensive and stereotypical and in ways that are admiring, you know, the the, the mastery of the pit master and all that. Um, so I think they are particularly identified African-Americans with barbecue in America. Uh, and I think it's, it, it was worth an examination. Uh, a friend of mine right now in Denver, a food historian, is writing a book specifically about blacks and barbecue. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be fascinating. Well, you make the point that it blurred the color line in so many different ways. Barbecue is, is one of these kind of gathering points. It's also a place where Uh, A black-owned business may draw white customers, whereas other black-owned businesses, especially during the Jim Crow era, would not have done that. And it actually was barbecue shops that became the source of some Supreme Court cases that fought against segregation. Can you illuminate a little bit of that history for us? Well, when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, uh, the you know we in Atlanta know that Lester Maddox and his fried chicken place uh, uh, filed one of the challenging lawsuits. But two of the other significant lawsuits that were filed came also came out of barbecue places. One of them was Maurice Bessinger's Piggy Park in Columbia, South Carolina. But the really key case was Ollie's Barbecue in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, Ollie felt like if he started serving black customers in the regular restaurant, he had always served him at the back door, uh, that he would chase off all his white customers. And so he challenged the law. And he lost his case. And he desegregated. Unlike Lester, who closed his fried chicken place and ran for governor, uh, Ali desegregated. Uh, so, you know, it, given that civil rights, that the South was a battlefield for it, and that this was the land of barbecue, of course they were going to figure in, in litigation over it. And Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. King, also admired barbecue. And in fact, there's a great quote in your book. Uh, he admired Gandhi's philosophical framework very much, but said he Gandhi had obviously never tasted barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> I think he, uh, yeah, I, I, I've got that quote in there. Uh, King lived in in the West End neighborhood over on Sunset, and there was a great barbecue place that it was there for many years called Alex Barbecue Heaven. That was his favorite place. And he used to go there and get ribs. Andrew Young told me that he used to write speeches after he had had ribs at Alex Barbecue Heaven because if you had a really complicated, greasy meal like that, you you had to stay up late at night <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> and so, but when King was killed, the people at Alex, uh, actually some years later, Pam Alexander, uh, who was the daughter of the founder, 
she made a Martin Luther King Jr. memorial booth at the back of the restaurant with a brooding portrait of King there. And basically, I, I went to Alex several times, and you always felt like you shouldn't sit at that booth unless you were invited. Mm. And Pam told me that's exactly what it was. You had to be invited to, to sit there. Well, so we are glad that you've sat in many booths of eating barbecue because there's so much that you reveal here. But, you know, again, back to that idea that the disputes over barbecue have always been somewhat warm, somewhat comical, but not always. Um, what are what are some of the big fights in the world of barbecue if we're talking about the technicalities, the techniques? You're talking about wood versus gas? I think that's a biggie. Yeah, the uh, traditional barbecue places have always been all wood. Uh, but uh, as, as, as the technology has changed, uh, I would say that the majority of barbecue places in America right now do not cook over all wood. Uh, most of them actually cook on gas hybrid cookers like Southern Pride or Old Hickory or the brands. And what these are, they're, they're really marvelous machines. What they are is they're, they're, they're gas ovens that regulate the heat, and you don't have to have somebody there at 4 o'clock in the morning tending a fire, and you can put in the wood to get the flavor, and you can get as much wood flavor as you want or as little wood flavor as you want. Some of the best barbecue places around actually use these gas hybrids now, and they're as good as the people who are using them. Uh, Community Q Indicator uses gas hybrids. Pig Pig and Chick uses gas hybrids. but there's also been a movement back, particularly with sort of high-end, crafty barbecue, to doing all wood. And, uh, you know, I, you can taste the difference, uh, but some of the gas hybrids, if you've got the right people using them, are pretty, pretty close. All right. So are you willing to go on the record, Jim? Pork, beef, vinegar sauce, tomato sauce? Oh, I am so ecumenical when it comes to barbecue. As far as the sauce goes, it depends on what the meat is. Uh, To me, I mean, I love Eastern uh, North Carolina style uh, whole hog, like Brian Furman has done here in Atlanta at B's Cracklin Barbecue. And the best sauce for that is that spicy vinegar sauce with any tomato in it. But there's a whole different thing that you would use on beef. And, you know, I've certainly got my list of the places where I've had great barbecue meals and all that, but I can't pick a single place because it depends on what you uh, want. And you were telling me the other day that the smoked tofu at Heirloom Market Barbecue is pretty darn good. And I can't wait, And I can't, wait, I can't wait to try that. What do you prefer with your iguana? My iguana? To be as far away as that's, possible? That's, that's the day I'm going to have a salad. <laughs> Jim Akmudi, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Virginia. This has been fun. Jim Akmudi, he is the author of Smoke Lore, A Short History of Barbecue in America. He's one of the curators of Barbecue Nation, the show which is still on view and will be until September at the Atlanta History Center. And talking tonight about barbecue and politics at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library this evening. We're going to leave you with a more updated barbecue song, Skew It on the Barbie from Outcast.
After months of waiting, Congress is sending disaster relief funds to Georgia farmers affected by Hurricane Michael. After a dry spring, pecan, cotton, and timber growers desperately need help. Some report being far behind on bills and loans, even on the brink of losing land that has been in their families for generations. But getting the money to them is easier said than done. U.S. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue says it won't be a stretch to provide funding for crops already on a federal assistance list, But for those that aren't, the process could be complicated and time-consuming. Here's Purdue announcing the aid in Doran, Georgia, earlier this month. Timber and pecan trees are not typically a crop production. They're crops, and we know that, and they're important, but we don't have standard programs. The title things like corn, soybeans, wheat, uh, those kind of things, we can do very quickly. The secretary said calculating how much each farmer should get is also tricky, owing to the variances in insurance and acreage. He inclined officials to build off distribution processes set up after Hurricane Irma back in 2017 as an aid. We're going to probably look at working with Gary Black, the commissioner here, to give a block grant. The states obviously can be more nimble and move more quickly in that regard. We hope that will facilitate the output of money quicker in that way as we work with them to develop a program that has integrity, accountability, but also gets the money faster and appropriately in the timber and the pecan area. On Second Thought has been checking in with a variety of farmers since Hurricane Michael last fall, including Mark Peel, cotton farmer and president of South Central Georgia Gin Company. Now that lawmakers have signed off on aid, Peel remains frustrated at having to wait months to get it. And I know it's a big job. It's a lot of work and it's got to be done accurately, you know, and make sure everything's done fair and square. And I can appreciate that. But, you know, our guys, man, they're suffering. I mean, they're really having a tough time. And with the one thing that they sort of clinging to, a little bit of hope, you know, this disaster money. Peel emphasized that many farmers are having trouble paying their bills. Matter of fact, I was with some guys earlier, some of our farmers, and when they asked me, you know, what, when do you think we're going to get some money? And I said, well, you know, maybe two months, maybe 60 days. Or They're like, man, you're kidding me. I don't know if I can wait that long. Oh, my fuel bill. I, I promised my guy where I bought my fuel from, I promised him that I'd pay him once I got my disaster money. And our company actually has people who owe us money. And I was just recently talking with them. And they said, you know, when that disaster money comes, you're going to get paid. And Hurricane Michael is not the only major weather event these farmers have had to deal with. Peel said the folks in his industry have had a tough three years. All the money's going out right now, and they didn't have anything carry over from last year. The storm was just so horrific. And, you know, in 17, we had a storm as well. Irma really took a toll on our crops, too. So in our specific area, I guess southeast Georgia, we've had drought, and that's really taken this toll as well. Farmers are holding out hope that federal aid can ease their struggles. They say they just want to keep the farms their families have worked on for generations, and they want to continue supplying Georgia and the rest of the U.S. with food and other crops. Well, we want to know, do you live in Georgia's farm country? Are people in your community counting down the seconds until they receive relief funds? We'd love to hear your story. Join our conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radios on Second Thought. You can also reach us on Twitter at OSD Talk. Email us 
on Second Thought at gpb.org or leave us a message at 404-500-9457. And, you know, if you don't even know what's going on for Georgia farmers in those communities, is that something that you think that you'd like to hear more about? We would love to bring you that news on, on Second Thought. It is such a vital part of our state's economy and connection here. Well, that's all that we have time for for today. But if you missed any of today's show or if you want to listen on your own time, you can hit the programs tab for On Second Thought at gpbnews.org. And that's where you can subscribe to the OST podcast. So you will never miss a thing. It's a great way to share programs as well. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and the Raven Taylor. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Don Smith is our dean of grammar, and Jake Troyer is and is our intern. Also, Allison Krausman. Special thanks to her today for doing a lot of work. Amy Kiley is senior producer, and we also had some help today. Political Rewind intern Luke Guillory gathered audio for today's show. Our theme song is produced and edited and composed by Alex Crispin and Marshall Ruffin. I'm Virginia Prescott. Please join us again for more of On Second Thought tomorrow.